Good morning to you. Now, if you have your Bible, please turn with me to John chapter 12. I'm going to read the last bit of John chapter 12. And I'll start reading from verse um, 36. Verse 36 to the end of the chapter. While you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of light. When Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still do not believe in him. So that the words spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore they could not believe, for again Isaiah said, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart, and turn, and I would heal them. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of them. Nevertheless, many even of the authorities believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees they did not confess it so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. For they love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. And Jesus cried out and said, Whoever believes in me, believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And whoever sees me, sees him who sent me. I have come into the world as light, so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him. For I do not come to judge the world, but to save the world. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. And I know that his commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. This bow has and pray father we come before you now and recognize that apart from your holy spirit working in our hearts and opening our eyes to see you and to see the truth that you communicate in your word we will not understand it we will not be able to receive it or accept it we would reject it and we would turn against it and yet we know lord that with your sovereign power and work in our hearts with your with your spirit active we would embrace and truly come to know you through the words that you have spoken. So Lord, we pray now this morning that you would be active in every heart here and that you would be working in us to turn us to you, helping us to hear from you this morning. And so we come to you now, Lord, and pray that you would speak to us. And we ask this in Jesus' name. You know, this passage right at the end of John chapter 12 is really quite a, a hard nut to crack, as it were. And, uh, you know, I thought about it all this week. How should I approach this passage? Because it outlines something that can be so difficult for us to understand. And I think this little illustration that I want to give to you from my, my life as a married man for nearly four years now with Sarah, I think this will really kind of help us just to have the right attitude in approaching this passage. I don't know if you guys have ever heard of something called the five love languages, but uh, I don't know where it came from. But it is something that describes essentially that people receive and give out affection and love in different ways. And you know, for Sarah and I, we, we, we receive and, and give out love in different ways. For me, I'm a really a physical affectionate kind of guy, right? I express my affection by hugs and cuddles and, and I, I expect to receive it in the same way. 
Where Sarah, she's more of a time and attention. You know, she feels loved if I give my time to her, give my attention to her with gifts and all of those things. And the physical side of things is not as big of a deal to her. And you know, one of the things that I learned very quick in marriage is that when I went in there assuming that I knew everything there was to know about her and concluded from my own wisdom that this must be how she receives love and how I should receive love, it's going to create a lot of misunderstandings in that relationship. And what happened uh, inevitably is that I would, you know, in her words, smother her by trying to hug her all the time and she would say, what are you trying to do? Why are you doing this all the time? I, I, want, I don't want to have hugs all the time. I want to have gifts from you and attention and time. And then when she doesn't give me as many hugs, I feel unloved. And there's misunderstanding there. And it's not because the heart is the issue. It's, it's that we really relied on our own understanding. We relied on our, our way of expressing love and affection. And I just say that as a, as a little kind of introduction to this passage, because we really have to come to God's Word as a whole, not assuming that we know everything there is to know. That we, by our wisdom, can deduce everything that is true. And I certainly know that lesson. I don't even know my own spouse and how to love her from my own wisdom. I can't conclude it because I am so limited in my human understanding. And as we come before this part of God's Word, that is so true of us to remember that we cannot understand the depth of God's wisdom. His ways are not our ways and His thoughts are not our thoughts. What we do as we come before God's Word is that we sit under it and we receive with a humble heart what He has to say. I give all of that as a preface because now we come in this point of John's Gospel account to the end of Jesus' public ministry. For the last 12 chapters, John had been writing about how Jesus was dealing with all the crowds in Galilee, but mostly in Jerusalem, and how He had been teaching them and telling them about God. And this is really the turning point in the book where Jesus, right there in verse 36, but as a whole, He, he hides Himself from the crowds and for the rest of the book, he talks really specifically to only his disciples that are with him. And at the end of Jesus' public ministry, there stands this undeniable fact. And that is, despite the many numbers of people who turn to Jesus and says, I believe in you and I will follow you. The majority of the crowds did not follow Jesus. The majority of the people did not believe in Jesus as the Christ, the chosen one of God. They do not believe in Him. And there's this really this question that lurks right in the background. And you can almost hear John answering this objection to his original readers in the first century. They would be thinking this, if Jesus is the promised chosen King of the Israel people, how come the majority of the Israel people rejected Him? If Jesus claims to be the Christ, how can that be if the majority of His people rejected Him? You know, nobody becomes president if only 10% of the population votes for them. Nobody can claim themselves to be the, the greatest person in, in all the world and, and from that nation if nobody in that nation actually believes in Him. And so there's this real objection to the legitimacy of Jesus' claim to be the chosen Savior and Lord of the world. His own people did not believe in Him as a whole. 
the majority of his own flesh and blood, from a national point of view, rejected him. And so John, you can almost see, he's answering that objection before he even is leveled at Christ. John tells the reader that rather than the rejection of Jewish peoples of Christ, rather than the rejection of him proving that he was not the chosen one, their rejection of him at a wholesale and majority level actually proves and validates the fact that he is the one who was promised before him. Now he may say this. He says this by quoting Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah, the great prophet in the Old Testament. And he quotes from Isaiah 6 and Isaiah 53, but he quotes this. And I'll just read out what he says in verse 38. He says, This was all done so that the words spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The Lord who has believed will be heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed. Therefore they could not believe, for again Isaiah said, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn and all Now when Isaiah spoke those words, this was 700 years before the life of Jesus Christ. Isaiah was a man who lived 700 years B.C. And when he was commissioned in Isaiah chapter 6, when he came before the throne of God and was commissioned as the messenger of God, God told Isaiah, when you go and speak this message that I'm about to give you to my people Israel, they will not believe in you. Rather, the majority of them will turn away from you and reject your message. Because as a whole, my people have rejected me. And John takes that word, those words of Isaiah, and there in verse 41, John can say under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. And what John is saying is that when Isaiah spoke that the people would reject God's message, he actually saw a glimpse of the glory of Jesus Christ. And the fact that despite the many signs that Jesus did, verse 37, so many things that he did to prove who he was, raising a man even from the dead with a word, their rejection of him was actually foretold and according to the words that God had already spoken. When Isaiah saw Jesus, he saw that he would be rejected, that he would be despised, that he would be a man of sorrows and afflicted with grief. And in fact, if you consider it from another angle, and as we've considered the, the great and many signs that Jesus has done, it's actually incredible to any of us, it should be, that not everyone has believed in him. How can someone watch a man with a word raise a dead body back to life and yet turn away and say, I don't really think he's anyone special? That's all the more incredible. And all of this, John says, was not only foretold by Isaiah the prophet, God's messenger, but was actually planned by God himself. That God's plan was actually established in the rejection of Jesus Christ. And we know this because without their rejecting of Christ, Christ never would have gone to the cross and died in the place of sinners to rescue sinners from death. And so in their rejection, God's plan is established. And John is saying to anybody who might have that objection, how can Jesus be the Christ of his own people rejected him? 
John is saying their rejection of him is actually fulfilling and proving that God's word was being fulfilled. That God's word was being actioned. But we come to really this part of scripture that boggles our minds because in verse 39, in the middle of those two quotations, John concludes that they could not believe. And when he quotes Isaiah 53, there in 40, he's saying that God was the one who blinded them and hardened them. What are we to make of this? And again, the reminder is as we come before God's word, our wisdom is limited. We sit under God's word. But you know what God's word declares without any shame or embarrassment? It declares that God is totally in control over everything, including the human heart and the human soul. It's that God, as the great sovereign king of all the universe, exerts his divine authority even over human beings themselves. And when John writes of the Jewish people in Jesus' day, now remember John wrote after this had happened. He looks back as a witness and presents it to us, the readers. He could say, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, that those Jewish people, they were hardened by God so that they would not turn towards Christ and be healed. That they did not believe in Jesus because God had planned that they would not believe in Jesus. And all of this, again, Isaiah says, verse 41, this shows the glory of Christ, the glory of God. And we think of this truth, and we really struggle to grasp that. But what one thing is clear, is that when God is in control over all things, He does it all to display His own glory and His own majesty. And one of the most pivotal texts in all of the, the scriptures that teach us this is there in Romans chapter 9, verse 22 and 23. And there the Apostle Paul says, What if God, wanting to display His power and His wrath and His justice, prepared with great patience vessels for destruction? And He does that in order to highlight His mercy and His grace and His love to the vessels of mercy. But what John, or sorry, what Paul was saying there in Romans 9 is that God has the right to display the fullness of His glory on every human um, person, however He wishes to. And you know, on the last day in the judgment, when those who are not made right with God are judged according to their evil deeds, and put away for eternal destruction, all the universe will stand on their feet and applaud God's power and justice in putting away evil. God will be glorified. And on that last day, when those who deserve to be destroyed, but were saved by His grace in their hearts, when they turn to Christ and trust in His sacrifice, all the universe will stand to its feet and applaud God's mercy and power in saving undeserving sinners. God will be glorified. Do you know, God will be glorified one way or another. And He has every right to do that 
because he is the creator of every human being. That is the truth that the Bible puts forth without blushing. That is the truth that as a preacher, I must simply get out of the way of the Bible and convey to you, this is what the Bible teaches. And it is a thing that we really cannot understand without human wisdom, without limited understanding. But this is what God's Word declares, that God is the great King who is in control over every human being. And He plans all things so that He will magnify and glorify all of His divine attributes, from His justice to His mercy. But here's the thing that we must be careful of. Because so often, we hear such things and we go naturally, without human logic, conclude, well, therefore, this must be true. And more often than not, those things are not true. And I want to give us three things this morning of how to apply this truth correctly in accordance with the whole of God's counsel with the entirety of God's Word. And I really am praying that it will protect us from the wrong conclusions of this divine truth. And I say these things not to explain the Bible to those who slander the Word of God, to those who already reject God, to those who are unspiritual. Because really, even if explained, they would find ways to slander God's Word. But I explain to all of us who genuinely want to know how God can put all of these things together. And to every true believer who wants to know what God has to teach on these things. How can this be relevant to us? And I want to bring us three simple things this morning. All the while keeping in check, we dare not let our human logic and our faulty wisdom overrule the plain teachings of God's Word in the Bible. And the first one is this. Many will conclude if God is so in control over every human heart, how can we be responsible for our sins? And Paul even answers that question in Romans 9 because the objection is that who can resist God's will? How then does He hold me responsible if He has planned it all? Now, I dare not presume to explain to you the exact mechanisms of how this can fit together. But what I can declare to you with total confidence is that God's Word declares that every human being is responsible for the things that they do, for the evils that they commit. They will be responsible before God, even though God is totally in control. We see that even in this passage. We see there in verse 37, John expresses the amazing thing that even though he had done so many signs, they still did not believe. Wow, they're responsible, even though they saw so many proofs. And in verse 42 and 43, in John speaking of the religious leaders, that they had believed in him, but for fear of man, they were not willing to confess him. Their faith was not yet complete. And John writes it as a charge against them. Look at their faith not being complete. They were more concerned about the glory of man than the glory that came from God. And lastly, 
in verse 48, Jesus says that the one who rejects me and does not receive my words will be judged by my words. That the one who hears Christ and yet turns away will be held accountable for their turning away from the words of Christ. I cannot say to you how this comes together. But what I can do to you is put on the table what God's Word puts on the table. Yes, God is totally in control. He is the sovereign King over all things. But every one of us will be held accountable to God Almighty for what we do in this life, for how we act and how we think and for the words that we speak. And most importantly, for every one of us here this morning, you will be held accountable for how you respond to God's word, whether you receive it or whether you reject it. That is the truth that is clear from the Bible. And so we dare not use our human logic to say, well, therefore, if God is in control, I have no responsibility. God's word contradicts you on that point and says to you, you are responsible and you ought to feel that responsibility. Now secondly, I want to lay this charge. Secondly, I want to make this point. Christians can perhaps out of an ignorance of the whole of God's word, conclude that if God is in control and He has mercy and saves whoever He wills, then I have no responsibility as a Christian to pray or to evangelize. Because God's going to do it. Why don't I just sit on my couch and enjoy TV until He comes back? I mean, if God is in control, I have no reason to go out there and exert myself in prayer over the souls of my neighbors and friends and to go out there and evangelize and bring the message of Christ to them. And here again, God's Word tells us that we must not think in that way. Again, you beware the faulty logic of human wisdom. Because God's Word tells us that we must pray and we must bring the message to those around us. In fact, I would say this. Have you thought about this? If God was not in control and totally sovereign in His power, why pray then? Rather than, the God's, rather than, than God's sovereignty eliminating the need for prayer and evangelism, if God was not totally in control, it would totally take out the feet of prayer and evangelism. Have you thought of it in that way? Why in the world are you praying for a neighbor to know Christ if God has no power to affect them? If God had not the authority and the right to turn someone to Himself, why in the world would you pray to Him? Your prayers would be totally wasted. And what confidence would you ever have of evangelizing and sharing the good news of Christ to somebody? If you were entirely dependent on your wisdom and on their corrupted choice. If God was not in control, Christian prayer and Christian evangelism is totally pointless and utterly useless. But you know, because God is totally in control, prayer works far more than all that we can even 
because we approach not someone who has only a little bit of power. We approach someone who not only tries to do a little bit of persuading, but yet has no power to bring it to completion. Do you know in prayer, you approach the great King of Kings who has the power to speak light into darkness with the world and has the power to raise someone from the dead with just a word. You approach God who has the power to save even the worst of sinners, even Saul of Tarsus, who killed the saints of God, God could save in an instant. Because God is totally in control, prayer has so much power behind it because it approaches the great King who has all power. And evangelism is so founded on confident bedrock, it is sure to succeed because God will save His people. He will work through the sharing of the good news to bring in all those whom He has chosen. Evangelism will work because God is the one working through the sharing of the gospel. And because He has all power and authority, it will be successful. And so rather than God's sovereignty lessening the Christians need and responsibility and confidence in prayer and evangelism. This truth of God's control of all things ought to encourage you, dear believer, to pray like there's no tomorrow, to evangelize with total confidence. You don't do anything in vain when you trust in God, the Almighty Lord of all the universe. It gives us such incredible confidence to pray and to ask Him of even the most unimaginable things. Lord, save this nation. Save this whole world. You can never ask too much of God because precisely He is that great King who controls all things. But lastly now, I want to conclude on this final note and really bring that first point to application, especially to you this morning, if you are not yet a believer, I want to apply this truth to you in a way that is consistent with what the Bible puts it forth as. If you are not a Christian this morning, do you know what this truth tells you? It doesn't negate your responsibility before God, but what it does inform you is that the God that tells you to come to Him, the God that invites you in His Word to believe in Him, is a God that is not to be trifled with. He is not a pathetic God who pleads with you in the sense of needing you. He is the great King. We, as sinful human beings, we are beggars who need bread to live. God is the great King who is in control over all things. And when you think of God, and in His Word, He so pleads with you, and He so invites you, O oh, sinner who is separated from me, come to me and you will live. God speaks to you from a place of total authority and kingship. And you reject Him and turn away from Him. 
at your own peril and loss. What this truth reminds every single human being is that we approach God not in flippant and trivial attitude, but we come to Him with awe and fear and trembling, recognizing and confessing that He is the great King over every human heart. But you know, even there, there is an encouragement to you. If you are this morning thinking to yourself, I want to know God, but I know how terrible I am. I know how horrible my heart really is. I know my sinfulness. I'm too sinful to come to God and be saved by Him. God's power encourages you. Commit yourself to Him. And He will be more than able to save you. God has the power to change a human heart. He has the total authority and right to make you, though you are a sinner and separated from Him, to make you a saint, to make you righteous with Him in the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's precisely this power of His that ought to encourage you to come to Him and to rely entirely upon Him to save you. And so God's Word this morning encourages you to come to Him. I mean, look at how John places the last words of Jesus publicly. Even after him declaring that God and his sovereign plan had hardened the hearts of the Jewish people, he can say from verse 44 onwards, hear the words of Christ, listen to this. He says, Jesus cried out and said, whoever believes in me, believes in the one who sent me. If anyone sees me, he sees him who sent me. If anyone receives my word, he has received the word of God himself. And that word, that commandment is eternal life. When Jesus gives this appeal, he is genuinely saying, if anybody, whoever, anybody at all, if they should turn to my words and receive them, they will have eternal life. That truth is most, most definitely true. It's a genuine offer. And if anybody should turn to Christ, they will find life guaranteed. And you know, you almost see John, the gospel writer, he's almost saying this in the way that he is structured, how he ends this chapter. John, the gospel writer, how he structures the end of the public ministry of Christ. It's as if he's saying this to us as the readers. He's saying, I have the Spirit's inspiration and I can look back in the time of Jesus Christ and how the crowds rejected Him by a majority. And I can say that they were hardened towards Christ, that under God's sovereign ruling, they did not believe. You can see John looking at the reader in the eyes and saying, but what about you? Because you know Christ's public appeal still stands today. Those back then, we can see their end because their time has passed. But your time, dear reader, is still here. We do not yet know your ultimate destiny. In fact, we cannot know the ultimate destiny of any human being while they are still alive. 
And so John's saying to the reader, will you turn to Christ and have eternal life? Or will you prove yourself to be the same as these Jewish crowds who rejected Christ wholesale? The choice is laid before you. Yes, God is totally in control, but in our experience and in our human lives, we don't know what He has decreed. And it would be presumptuous for any of us to declare over any human being, this is their ultimate destiny. We cannot know. The secret things belong to God, but the things He has revealed belong to us. And He has revealed that the gospel message is genuinely offered to every human being. And this morning, Jesus' words comes before you and says, if you believe, you will have life. If you receive the words of Christ this morning, you have the assurance from God Himself that you will receive pardon and life everlasting from Him. And my prayer is that you will take God's word and receive it and believe it. The only thing that's at stake is your own life. The only thing that's at stake is your eternal destiny. And I pray that God would turn your heart towards it. Let's pray to God now. Oh, the depth and the wonders of your wisdom. Oh, how unsearchable and inscrutable are your ways, Lord God Almighty. We dare not presume to conclude anything that would go against what you have revealed so plainly. But great Lord and our Heavenly Father, we come to you now and we ask with, with fear and with reverence, Lord, would you be pleased to turn every heart here this morning towards you. For those of us who already know you, would you increase our love towards you and grow our vision of you, of your glory, of your majesty, that we may with more confidence obey what you have set up for us to do in prayer and in evangelism and in loving those around us and in loving you. And Lord, we come to you now and pray for those of us who do not yet know you, have not yet come to receive your words wholeheartedly. Oh Lord, turn their hearts to you. Open their hearts to you. Give them the total assurance and confidence that if they commit themselves to you, they will find life. Because you never lie. And your word stands solid and sure. So save, O Lord. Turn them to you and have mercy on them. We pray, Lord, that you would bless us richly. And may your name be the name that is lifted up. May your glory be the one that is shown and shone forth that all may see and praise you and bow the knee to you and confess you. We thank you, Lord, again for your goodness. We ask that you bless us for the rest of this time.